Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, Oxford University and a biotech firm in China this week announced their vaccines triggered an immune response without severe side effects. Meantime, the U.S. is putting billions into pharmaceutical and biotech firms to speed up the production of a vaccine and help ensure Americans get the first doses. But even after a vaccine is deemed safe and effective, making sure it reaches everyone will be another major hurdle. Federal health officials have been meeting to hammer out a distribution plan. We look at the latest vaccine developments and how a vaccine should be delivered after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Researchers are racing to develop a coronavirus vaccine by as early as the end of the year, and some two dozen vaccines are already in human trials. Federal health officials have been meeting to determine who should get the first set of doses once a vaccine is available. Frontline health workers and other essential workers, people in nursing homes, teachers. We take your questions about the latest vaccine developments and the prospects for a successful, equitable vaccine distribution plan. We're joined now by Dr. Paul Offit. He's a professor of pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine and director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Offit. Thanks for asking me. And also with us is Dana Bowen-Matthew, Dean and Professor of Law at George Washington University Law School and Ethics Advisor to the CDC. She's also the author of Just Medicine, A Cure for Racial Inequality in American Healthcare. Thanks for joining us, Dana Bowen-Matthew. Thank you very much for having me. Also with us is Damien Garde, National Biotech Reporter at Stat News. Good morning, Damien Garde. Hi, Mia. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, Damien, start us off, if you could. Can you tell us about the news Monday, about the vaccine development? Oxford University seems to be the one that people are excited about. Yeah. So after, you know, months of, of kind of consternation about when we were going to see actual human data on the many um, potential coronavirus vaccines in development, on Monday, we got a publication from an early stage trial from Oxford University, as you mentioned, which is partnered with AstraZeneca. Um, and what we saw is basically it's an interim look at an ongoing study that, that is mostly focused on safety. Um, but, you know, according to you know, the experts I spoke with, the, the side effects observed with this potential vaccine um, were mostly mild to moderate and, and likely acceptable if, in fact, it proves to work. And, you know, the important thing to note with all of these early stage trials is obviously what we want from one of these vaccines is to protect people from getting infected with coronavirus and, and eventually developing COVID-19. 
these early studies are not designed to detect that. So instead, we're just looking at how the immune system responds to these potential vaccines. And on that score, the uh, level of antibodies that were generated in volunteers who received the vaccine were, were broadly encouraging and may suggest uh, that the vaccine proves to be protective, but that's something that really couldn't be determined until we have data for much larger trials that are designed to actually measure that. So to the extent that you might call these early trials successful, it's important to note that that, that success is definitely incremental. So now that they have figured out that it's relatively safe, you're saying they can go ahead and conduct that much larger trial to get at that bigger question of whether it works. Yes, and it's important to note, you know, in the interest of speed, all of these companies are are working at unprecedented speed. So that larger trial is actually already underway. So the companies have kind of been stacking risk uh, upon risk by by basically running all of this stuff in tandem or in parallel. Wow. And when you're talking about all these companies, can you just give us a little bit more information from earlier this month? We were getting results from Moderna. How are they doing and how excited should we be about that? That's right. Yes. Yeah. So Moderna published um, results from its phase one trial. I believe that was just last week, uh, which was a 45 patient trial. And similarly, the main goal was to determine the safety of, of, the, of the potential vaccine while also looking at its effect on neutralizing antibodies, which, um, as I mentioned before, may prove to be protective. And so in that study, we saw side effects in, in 100% of the patients who, who got the, the dose level that Moderna is taking forward, although they, again, were, were mostly dubbed mild to moderate and were fatigue, chills, headache, and especially pain at the site of the injection. Um, but encouragingly, the levels of neutralizing antibodies that Moderna observed were at or slightly above the antibody levels we see in patients who have been diagnosed with COVID-19 and have recovered from it. Um, but again, you know, I think something that's kind of underrated when we talk about the novel coronavirus is the word novel. We don't necessarily know what level of antibodies in, in the blood plasma actually protects against infection. We don't really know what the risk of reinfection is for, for patients who've recovered. And, um, and furthermore, we don't know how long the antibodies last in the body. Um, there's been, you know, kind of uh, drips and drabs of data from around the world suggesting that antibodies may, or antibody levels may wane back to basically normalcy after between, you know, 30 days, maybe three months, depending on which study you look at. So there are just so many unanswered questions here, and that applies to all the vaccines um, just as much as it does to the epidemiology. Um, but to your question on Moderna, they are slated to begin a phase three placebo-controlled 30,000 volunteer study uh, virtually any day now, is what the company said. And so we will be getting the data that we really want, which is you know whether these vaccines actually protect people. Well, Dr. Paul Offit, given what uh, Damien just laid out, I mean, are you concerned about compromises to safety or efficacy on such a fast timetable as he was talking about? I think as long as we do the kinds of phase three trials that are recommended by the NIH active group, which is to say phase three trials of about 30,000 people where roughly 20,000 get a vaccine and 10,000 get placebo, that is the stopgap that makes me much less worried. I mean, the human papillomavirus vaccine was tested in 30,000 people before licensure, the conjugate pneumococcal vaccine, 35,000 people. So as long as we do that, but I'm going to tell you, I'm frightened that that may, might not happen. I mean, we're coming up on an election year. We have vaccines that are being made at the levels of millions to tens of millions of doses in Operation Warp Speed. And I just think there'll be an enormous temptation to reach one's hand into that Warp Speed bucket 
pull out a couple of vaccines and say, look, we've tested this in a few thousand people. It looks like it's safe. The immune responses look good, even though, as Damien pointed out, the immune responses tell you nothing about efficacy. You're not going to know about efficacy until you do an efficacy trial, which is going to be a phase three trial. So I do worry about this. And, and Damien's a lot more optimistic about these two papers than I am. I mean, if you look at the, you know, the paper that came out of Oxford, I mean, that, that was essentially, it builds a thousand person study. Five, mm -hmm. Roughly 500 people got a vaccine, 500 people got a different vaccine, the meningococcal vaccine. So of the 543 people who were in the vaccine group, only 35 were tested to see whether or not they had an immune response. And, and their neutralizing antibody response was actually a little less than what we expected after a natural infection. So they gave another 10 people a booster dose. So now you had a two-dose vaccine. AstraZeneca, who has partnered with, uh, with this UK group, has said that they're going to move forward on a two-dose vaccine. That means that this was a paper that evaluated 10 participants. Similarly, the, the New England Journal of Medicine paper on Moderna was, as Damien said, sort of 45 people, each given a different dose. So it's three groups of 15. So essentially 15 people got, got that dose that they're going to move forward. In. I mean, these are very, very small dose ranging studies. And I think while they're, they're in the world of go, go and no-go vaccine uh, de decisions, I think this, these are still a go. But we are really, really early in this, uh, in this uh, process. Sounds like you think we should temper our expectations and excitement around this. And of course, you co-invented the vaccine for rotavirus. And I'm wondering, I mean, even at the pace that this is going, when do you think uh, a vaccine that is hopefully safe and effective uh, would be widely available? I mean, help us understand a bit of the timeline that a vaccine goes through here. Well, well, typically vaccine timelines are 15 to 20 years, but this is an ARS vaccine was made in about 26 years. So maybe I'm just a bad sport, but <laughs> I think that, um, that, that it's okay. Uh, as long as we do a phase three trial, I think I, I feel fine that we can move forward. And I think I don't have a problem with warp speed, meaning making vaccine at risk, uh, knowing that the vaccine hasn't been proven to be safe or effective as long as we do the right kind of trial. Um, then it, it's a matter of distribution and implementation, which is not going to be easy. I mean, as Damien said, and you said, I mean, how, you know, I think the high-risk groups have already, to some extent, been defined by the Advisory Community for Immunization Practices, and those high-risk groups entail about a little more than 120 million people likely getting a two-dose vaccine, so that's 240 million doses that would have to be distributed in a, in a way that can't just be in the medical home. I mean, it can't just be doctor's office that distribute this. It's going to have to be pharmacies and a variety of other sites where, where people can get vaccines. It's a challenge, and it's a challenge so far that the administration really has met on other things like face mask provision or PPE provision or, or uh, testing or even just providing clear evidence on what we should do in terms of hygiene. So I do worry about how this all plays out. Plus, warp speed is being treated as if it's run by the administration and the Department of Defense. And frankly, it's being handled like a secret weapon. I mean, there's a, there's a, it's really a black box. I'm sure um, uh, 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 journalists like Damien have been frustrated trying to get information out of warp speed. Um, well, let me invite our listeners to join us first. The latest developments in developing a coronavirus vaccine and how it should be distributed is the topic today on Forum. And if you have questions for our guests, give us a call 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also reach us on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. And uh, Dr. Uh, Bowen, 
Matthew, I wanted to ask you about what Dr. Offit was talking about with regard to how the U.S. is handling this process of developing and distributing a vaccine. And I know that you are on the committee that is advising the CDC around distribution. The New York Times reported that there is a preliminary plan in place. Can you just give us some sense of what that preliminary plan is in terms of who would get this vaccine once it's available and had gone through all of these processes to ensure its safety and effect? Sure. I certainly can give you some broad contours of that. Thank you for the question. It turns out that much of what we're doing in the working group for the ACIP is confidential. Um, and so I'll speak to some of the things that are obvious and to be expected without disclosing some of the things that yet have been made public. Uh, it would come as no surprise that healthcare workers are being prioritized for uh, many reasons, not the least of which is, which, uh, is that we will depend on them to respond to um, and to defeat the pandemic. Uh, another reason is because they are putting themselves in harm way for the good of the whole. So they are very important and going to be prioritized. Uh, no surprise there, there's wide public support for that type of response. But uh, one of the things I'm concerned with as Paul and Damien were thinking about the safety and the effectiveness of the vaccine, I'm thinking about the fairness of it. When we get a safe vaccine, is it going to be fairly distributed? I think most people know, and if they don't, um, I'll share that the racial and ethnic disparities uh, with which this vaccine has hit populations that are African-American, that are Latino-American and American Indian uh, are startling and are disturbing. They're, they're very troubling. And making sure that the vaccine distribution recognizes and responds appropriately to those disparities is very important. Mm. Now, I say they're startling, but they're not a surprise to anyone. Why? Because they reflect longtime historical structural inequalities, I dare say structural racism. And so the fact that American Indians, African Americans are five times more likely than whites to be diagnosed with the vaccine. The fact that in DC where I live, African Americans are slightly over 30% of the population and yet well over 70% of those that are being hospitalized. This is going to require a racialized response, just as the structural inequalities have been racialized in the distribution of morbidity and mortality uh, for this. And so I said at the, uh, at the beginning of my comments in response to your question that healthcare workers certainly are uh, going to be prioritized. That's what we, we in the working group are thinking about. But the very same reasons that we are prioritizing healthcare workers also apply to African-Americans Latinx uh, populations and American Indians, and that is that we have put them in harm's way disproportionately mm. so that the rest of society can uh, go on during this pandemic. And uh, Dr. Offit, if we are going to prioritize people who are experiencing disproportionate infections and deaths in the Black, Latino, and Native American communities, as uh, Dr. Um, Bowen Matthew is pointing out, I mean, we better make sure they're also in the trials, right? And is that happening? Yes. I mean, I'm, I'm on the NIH active group. We're the ones who are sort of setting priorities as to how to set up these, these uh, clinical phase three trials. And, and just as, as Dana said, I mean, we have to include people who are at highest risk of this disease since those are the ones who are going to be getting um, the vaccines first. And certainly the African-American community, you know, people who are elderly, especially with comorbidities, et cetera, are at the top of the list. I mean, if you don't have adequate data showing that those subsets uh, can be given this vaccine safely and effectively, then you're never going to get 
get the, uh, the trust of those populations as you roll the vaccine out. Well, Alan asks, how is efficacy proven? Do phase three trials involve intentional exposure of the vaccinated subjects to the pathogen? Dr. Offit? Well, yes. I mean, it's, it's you know, when, when you, you allow for natural infection. So um, some people have argued for doing human challenge trials where you actually purposefully give uh, this, this virus to people uh, who either are or aren't vaccinated. That's not what we're doing now. What we're doing is we're just giving the vaccine to, say, 20,000 people, not giving it to 10,000, frankly, hoping, in a sense, that, that there's enough people in the 10,000 group, meaning the group that never got vaccinated, that get, uh, that get this infection or become ill with this infection so that you can actually make a statement about uh, efficacy, which is interesting in the sense that you advise all these people to do the kinds of things they need to do not to get infected. You know, wear masks, you know, maintain social distancing, wash your hands. But then on the other hand, at some level, you're never going to know whether or not your vaccine is effective unless they get infected. So it's, uh, it's ironic in that sense. Well, let me go to caller Hobie in Novato. Hi, Hobie. Hi. Uh, yeah, thank you for taking my call. Um, my question is, is um, I know how the common flu works. That's why we always have the flu is it continues to mutate and make itself resistant to existing vaccines. Um, my question is, is the coronavirus, does it have that same uh, mutability rate? And uh, are we going to see this vaccine that's being developed right now going to be ineffective because uh, the coronavirus will have mutated, uh, you know, three, four, five, who knows how far out it is before we get the next vaccine. And thanks. Doc- I'll take my, uh, yeah. thank, thanks so much, Hobie and, and Dr. Offit. I'll go back to you. Also, I know you need to leave us at the break. So uh, what is your response to Hobie's question about mutations? Sure. So this is a so-called single-stranded RNA virus. So it, like all single-stranded RNA viruses, it mutates. Measles is a single-stranded RNA. So is influenza, so is mumps, so is German measles, et cetera. The, the critical question is, does this mutate to cause a functional difference, meaning that it, it will escape the vaccine, for example, as influenza does, or it will become more or less virulent? Um, meaning more or less likely to cause severe disease. All the evidence to date is that while it appears to have mutated to some extent to become somewhat more contagious, there's no evidence that at least that key spot on the so-called spike protein, which is the protein that binds the virus to cells, has mutated away from from what would be a vaccine. So I don't don't think that's going to happen. Although there's one thing you said, Hobie, in your comment that always uh, surprised me is the term common flu. You know, it's like somehow influenza is okay. You know, influenza this year caused 50 million cases, caused 780,000 hospitalizations and 60,000 deaths, which is, you know, dramatic, yet somehow that gets grandfathered in. And and this year coming up, if if we do have co-circulation between SARS-CoV-2 and flu, it really could overwhelm the healthcare system to a much greater extent than last time. But what would be interesting is as we we, I think throughout the winter are likely to still practice uh, hygienic measures like wearing masks and social distancing. It'll be interesting to see what happens to the rate of, of influenza this year. I, I think it could dramatically drop. You could make the, the argument that every winter we should you know, wear masks to, uh, to prevent flu. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Damien Garde, Ellen asks, are there any trials for oral vaccines? Seems the logistics of scaling, manufacturing and distribution would be easier and distribution would be more fair. Yeah, so there is one company pursuing an oral vaccine, uh, which has received federal funding. My understanding of the science there, I mean, it obviously pales in comparison to the amount of evidence we have for, um, you know, traditional vaccine approaches. And in sort of kicking the tires on that with experts, I think there was some skepticism as to whether that would be a practicable 
solution in in any short term. Um, but I can say that that you know that technology exists and people are pressing forward with it. But the the most advanced vaccines, the ones most likely to to be first, second, or third, as long as this current crisis persists, are um, injections. And, and Dean Bowen, Matthew, I mean, does the way that it's administered, you know, play a role in terms of equity? Oh, it most certainly does. Uh, and one of the things that we have to think about when we think about equity, and as a dean of a law school, I think equity and equality all the time. But one of the things we have to think about is the experience that we have from the past that should inform us. We know that the outcome of the disease is severe. We know that the uptake of even uh, seasonal flu vaccinations in communities of color is really underrepresented. So if we have been forewarned about a problem and we know that the outcome is severe and it is within our power to avoid and prevent that problem, we have a moral obligation uh, to intervene in advance and uh, to achieve an equitable solution. Uh, and that's where we are with the coronavirus vaccine. What I mean is, you know, oral versus, say, another way of um, basically administering it, actually providing it to the person, like, say, versus a shot. I mean, are there ways that that can disrupt distribution equitably? Sure, it can. Uh, populations that are uh, older, that have uh, fewer resources um, that have language barriers that will be able to process the information and education about whether to take a vaccine series one, two, or three times orally or mm -hmm. otherwise. Um, these are the types of uh, population-specific uh, concerns that we have to be aware of and plan for in advance if we are going to have equitable distribution. I see. Well, Dr. Offit, I know you need to leave us soon, and I wanted to ask you one other thing, just because we were talking about the speed initially and some of the issues that could come to play when you are racing for a vaccine, and also your concerns about warp speed and the federal government rushing to be able to get something potentially for political reasons as well. I mean, on the international level, it seems like a race too. And I'm wondering what you... What you think about that? I mean, a race on globally could mean that we get something very quickly, but do you see other pitfalls related to countries basically competing to try to get one first? Sure. I mean, we're, we're first of all, I, I can tell you that no scientist came up with the term warp speed. It, it's, it, we're still trying to live that, that phrase down. It's a terrible phrase. But the, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we have a virus, at least in the United States, it's killing 500 to 1,000 people a day. We need a vaccine and, and, and we need a vaccine quickly. But the, the, you know, the tension here is you want to make sure you have a vaccine where at least to some extent you mitigate the risks. And when you do sort of a phase three trial and you do, say, 20,000 people in the vaccine group, you can say that at least the vaccine doesn't have an uncommon common side effect problem. When you when you do a, a phase three trial over a few months, which is what we're talking about, then you can say you have a vaccine which protects you for a few months, but you're not going to know until post-approval how long it protects you. And frankly, you're not going to learn until po post-approval whether it has a rare side effect. I mean, 20,000 people isn't 20 million people. But I think that the language that surrounds all this, which is just what you said, sort of the race, I mean, you know, the who are the five warp speed finalists? I mean, we yeah. the, the language about this is really uh, unnerving, actually, because you want to make sure the corners aren't cut. And I do worry about this. I mean, obviously, we're going to learn a lot over the next two years once these vaccines roll out, some of which have no, with which we have no experience, as Damon pointed out. Um, so we're going to learn things over the next two years, and I'm sure we wish, we're going to wish we knew now, but so we just have to proceed humbly and with our eyes open. 
Well, Dr. Paul Offit, professor of pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine and director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia with, is with us. Also, Dana Bowen-Matthew, dean and professor of law at George Washington University Law School. Damien Garde is a national biotech reporter at Stat News, and you, our listeners, are with us. You can reach us at 866-733-6786 with your questions about a coronavirus vaccine and about how to distribute it equitably. Uh, again, the number 866-733-6786. On Twitter and Facebook, we're at KQED Forum, and you can email us at forum at kqed.org. I'm Mina Kim. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about the latest developments in developing a coronavirus vaccine and how it should be distributed. We're joined by Damien Garde, national biotech reporter at Stat News, and Dana Bowen-Matthew, dean and professor of law at George Washington University Law School and ethics advisor to the CDC. And you, our listeners, you can call us at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. How hopeful are you that we'll get a coronavirus vaccine soon? And if it will be distributed fairly. And if there's one, will you and your family get the vaccine? You can also reach us on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. Damien Garde, I just want to back up for a quick second, just because Dr. Offit brought up Operation Warp Speed quite a bit. And I want to just help our listeners understand what that is, uh, because I think that it's an important part of understanding how the federal government is trying to expedite vaccine development. Right. So Operation Warp Speed is a fairly newfangled, uh, I guess, you know, multi-agency organism in our federal government. And so it includes the involvement of people from NIH, from CDC, uh, from Health and Human Services, Etc. But but as Dr. Offit mentioned, it, it seems to operate kind of parallel to the governmental structures that we know and understand. And it's uh, led by a man in the form of Monsef Slaoui, who um, has a lot of experience with vaccines. He was um, GlaxoSmithKline's basically vaccines leader for many years. But there are some concerns about transparency there. Um, immediately before joining Operation Warp Speed, he was on the board of Moderna, which is one of the leading companies um, developing a vaccine and had stock in Moderna. So, you know, obviously there was some controversy there. He uh, promised to to sell that stock off and, and donate the uh, increase in value that it had seen uh, to a charity, but he's not a government employee. He operates on a contract where he receives $1 a year. And that may seem altruistic. He's, he's a wealthy guy, I would assume. But the issue that has for transparency purposes is that means, you know, unlike the commissioner of the FDA or, or any other um, appointee, he doesn't have to file public disclosures or um, he's not party to, you know, disclosing what conflicts of interest he may have. He kind of gets this special dis dispensation. So, you know, to echo Dr. Offit and, and many other people there, a lot of us on the outside um, kind of have trouble getting access to what is going on um, with Operation Warp Speed and, you know, exactly how much influence it has mm -hmm. and how its deliberatory processes work. And are they behind the decision to award, you know, nearly $2 billion, a $2 billion contract to Pfizer and a German biotech firm as well? Are they basically kind of the people who are leading those types of investments? They are, yeah, alongside an organization called BARDA, which exists basically for this purpose, to, to fund things to deal with the um, national emergencies of, of, of the medical variety. But um, yeah, we don't have a lot of transparency into how those decisions are being made. We kind of just find out that they've been made once they have. Yes, and, and it sounds like what I found interesting actually from what I read was that 
they are going to try to get a vaccine um, to produce one by the end of the year and also to ensure that Americans get the first, you know, hundreds of millions of doses as well as part of this contract, which also kind of speaks to this pace. Uh, but regardless, no matter what, as we've mentioned, when a vaccine is widely available, there are going to be a lot of questions around who gets it. And we're joined now by Catherine Flores Martin. She's director of the California Immunization Coalition, which is a nonprofit public private partnership that's dedicated to fully immunizing and protecting Californians. Catherine Flores Martin, thanks so much for joining us. Good morning. So, so tell me how your organization is trying to mobilize um, and, and how community organizations generally are trying to mobilize to be ready when a vaccine is available in California. Absolutely. So we work in partnership with the California Department of Public Health Immunization Branch and the CDC and numerous professional organizations and community groups in California to ensure that we have access to vaccines and access is in terms of, is it available? Do we have the supply? Do we have the, the people to administer it? Is it accessible through their insurance plan or, or at no cost, et cetera? Um, and that it's equitably distributed. And that'll be even more important as we move through into the COVID-19 vaccine distribution. Um, and our work is guided by the science, the data and public health. Um, and we, we want a safe vaccine. That's our priority. Um, we want it as soon as we can, but safety and efficacy is the most important thing, more important than speed. Um, so what we're working on right now is preparing for the uh, that, that vaccine uh, distribution someday. But right now we have the upcoming influenza season, and that's an opportunity to test, um, test our system for future COVID-19 mm -hmm. vaccines program, uh, see what we need to improve and tweak so we can engineer a system that will be as successful as possible. And so what information do you need to be able to set up an effective vaccine delivery program? So luckily, not, not luckily, but um, we have the history of uh, what we uh, what was developed during H1N1 in 2009, for example, and certainly this is nothing like H1N1, it's not the flu, but, but we, it, it was a pandemic, and we did have um, a, a vaccine created specifically for that flu virus and a plan in place to distribute and administer it. And so we have something to start with. And so that involves understanding where our supply is going, how it's going to be distributed to the states, and the local health departments and the pharmacies and the other groups that will give the vaccine. So we've got a starting point, and so we can use that starting point plan, and that's what the, the um, state and the local communities are talking about right now. How important, uh, though, are the CDC guidelines in determining how you do it, or can, you, can the state decide for itself based on the needs of its own population? Right, so that's why we have guidelines, and it's not rules. So the CDC develops guidelines that the states use to to um, to to put out their plans. So it's the it's, it's extremely important. Um, the states are very guided by those mm -hmm. uh, that information that we get from the CDC, and um, so, and we we look to the CDC for all of that information. So uh, it was it was uh, an amazing accomplishment during H1N1. Great communication tools, and we have even more now with the COVID-19. They're keeping us up to date, and we're trying to get that information out through our networks. Well, let me go to caller Maya in Belmont. Hi, Maya. Join us. Hi, hi there. 
Uh, thanks for my call. Can you hear me? I can. Okay, great. Um, I understand that to uh, get to herd immunity, we need uh, 70 to 85 percent of Americans taking this vaccine. Yet how do we reconcile that with the fact that um, Americans are largely skeptical of vaccines with only about 45 percent, I understand, um, agreeing to take vaccines and particularly the fear around this one in particular? Uh, Maya, thanks. That's a great question. First, I, I want to go to you, actually, Catherine Flores Martin, and ask you if you have any sense, especially from past experience, how many Californians tend not to want to get vaccinated? It's a great question on the concern about um, reaching herd immunity on this vaccine, the upcoming COVID-19 vaccine. I, I want to respond to that one first, that, that if only 50 percent of people say they want it, we're going to focus on getting that vaccine to that 50% of the community. I think it's I think it's natural for people to have questions and concerns and be um, and, and and want to know as much about it before they take the vaccine. But I think as time as the process evolves, that that information will be forthcoming. And then with regard to people who decline vaccination, it depends on what data we're looking at. For school children, for example, we're at a really good place with 95% of California school children up to date on their vaccinations. Not currently. We could talk about that another time because of, you know, challenges getting everybody back into the doctor's office. But the um, uh, depend and we only have about maybe 50 or 60 percent of people getting their flu vaccination every year. So so it's it's a it's a challenge for sure. But we're hoping that people will understand how important it is to get their flu vaccination in particular this year. So we don't have, as Dr. Offit mentioned earlier, getting potentially having COVID and the influenza. We don't even, I don't even know what that looks like or how bad that could be. Uh, and, and so we want to make sure that people, we, we know what we can protect against. And so we need to protect people against what we already have protection for. So definitely get that flu vaccine if you can. Well, Catherine Flores Martin, really appreciate you coming on today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Catherine Flores Martin, Executive Director of the California Immunization Coalition. And uh, Dr. Dana Bowen Matthew, I also want to go to you with Maya's question because she's right. I mean, there have been reports out about polls that find anywhere from 30 to even 50% of respondents say they won't get the vaccine at this point. I mean, what does that mean potentially for uh, ensuring that we are able to eradicate this to at least some level where we can go back to, to normal life? And, and then also what needs to be done to try to lower those numbers? Dean Matthew? And while we try to get that connection with Dean Matthew, some more questions here. Uh, Chris writes, we've heard that antibodies might not last long. People have been reinfected after testing positive than negative. How are these vaccine trials providing long-term protection against coronavirus? And Damien Garde, you were talking about uh, antibodies and how there are a lot of questions about how long they last in the body and how effective they are and the implications of that for the vaccines that are being tested right now. Can you respond to Chris's question? Yeah, no, it's, it's a really important question. And, and unfortunately, the answer is we're still learning. Um, as I mentioned, there have been a few studies uh, around the world looking at relatively small populations and, and tracking how long antibodies stay in uh, the blood of people who've recovered. And, you know, in some cases, they're dissipating um, after as few as 30 days. And so the concern that brings up is, you know, does that mean those people could be reinfected? Another thing that kind of hasn't been studied 
uh, rigorously. But then furthermore, for these vaccines, as we mentioned, the only data we have now is on their effect on antibodies. So even if that proves to be protective, then the question becomes, well, for how long? Um, and so, you know, it's not impossible that we will get an effective vaccine, but that it won't be, you know, something like the measles where, you know, you get it and you're okay. It would be something that would require repeated uh, administrations over the course of a year. And in which case, that means that the constrained supplies of the vaccine will be even more constrained because not only will people need two doses to get protection, but they may need a multitude of, of administrations uh, over some period of time. Are there reasons to be optimistic, um, even though there were studies that are showing that that antibodies do uh, end up disappearing rather quickly, just because, as you said at the beginning, Damien Garde, this is a novel virus and there's a chance that that doesn't necessarily spell doom for uh, vaccines generating immune responses? Yeah, I mean, a reason for optimism, I guess, would be that, you know, the human immune system is a pretty fantastic machine. And so antibodies are not the only agents of fighting off foreign objects. There are also T cells. And, you know, again, this is all kind of uh, rapidly developing science. We, this isn't something that, you know, we've closed the book on. Um, but clearly T cells are involved in responding to the infection and may prove to be protective long term. And so it, we could eventually learn that despite the dissipation of antibodies that the immune system is primed to resist a second infection. But again, as with, as with the vaccine data, as with all the epidemiological stuff, we're still learning. Well, Alva Tweets, thank you for this interesting and informative discussion. I'm particularly interested in the politicization of the decisions to test, release, and distribute the vaccine. Echoing in my thoughts are the White House's claim that a large part of ventilator supplies were theirs. Damien Gardy, can you tell us what happened yesterday when officials from, you know, the major pharmaceutical companies and vaccine makers testified before a House investigative subcommittee? Because it sounds like at least the Democrats on that committee are also worried about a politicization of uh, how the vaccine will be developed and distributed. Right. So as Dr. Offit alluded to earlier, there's a pretty widespread concern, I think, in public health circles and, and in Congress, apparently, that, you know, President Trump, in search of kind of an October surprise to uh, rescue his flagging poll numbers, will just kind of order by fiat that a vaccine be approved um, before it has been demonstrated in clinical trials. And so that came up um, quite often yesterday at that hearing. And what the drug industry largely said is that they trust the FDA. And the FDA came out last month with a guidance document basically setting the bar for a future vaccine. And, and that bar, I mean, in addition to being safe, is that it has to um, basically protect against 50% of infections in those large placebo-controlled trials that we're referring to. And so the industry seemed to take solace in that because, you know, while they obviously want to make money, their businesses, they're conscientious of, as we mentioned, vaccine hesitancy and, and the perception of their industry around the world. They don't want to sell a vaccine that ends up being uh, not effective or even worse, dangerous in some way. But, you know, lawmakers didn't seem convinced that the FDA would have the fortitude to stand up to the White House if, in fact, that situation came to be. Well, uh, let me go next to Tom in Las Gatas. Hi, Tom. Hi, Mina. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, I I heard last week um, from Dr. Peter uh, Chen Hong, the famous uh, AIDS researcher doctor, that uh, not a single AIDS or transplant patient has died from uh, COVID-19, and also uh, uh, not a single transplant patient has died from COVID-19. I don't know if he's serious or not, but he said it might have been due to uh, 
the fact that their their immune system systems are so weak, uh, either from AIDS or from the medicines the uh, transplant patients take, that they were able to fight off uh, the disease uh, by not over having their uh, immune systems overstimulated, you know, clogging their lungs uh, with fluid and that sort of thing. So, uh, should they be vaccinated with any kind of vaccination at all, or, do, or should they just rely on their uh, natural protection and, protect, and the protection of the, uh, you know, anti uh, rejection drugs they're taking now at this at this time? Hmm. Thanks, Tom. Uh, Dana, Bowen, Matthew, are you with us? I just got back on. Yes, I did. <laughs> Sorry that we lost you there. An interesting question from Tom, and also I think raises this broader question about where people with underlying health conditions are, say, in line to get the vaccine, potentially. Certainly, it is an interesting question. The underlying comorbidities issue is also very important from a structural standpoint. Uh, the caller is asking about HIV AIDS, uh, protective uh, resources and why these uh, vaccine, why the vaccine might or might not be appropriate for that population. Uh, the wonderful thing about that question is that it's looking at the population levels and the reasons that people have underlying comorbidities. Uh, one of the things I am hopeful that we will not do is simply let the comorbidities tell the whole story and not get behind the causes of the causes. That is the causes of why someone might be or a population might be predisposed to have HIV or have diabetes or have heart disease or these other comorbidities that are predisposing people to the, uh, to the vulnerability. Uh, and those are structural issues. Um, they are the issues that uh, put us, for example, uh, uh, on a seat on a plane, whether we're in first class or in coach matters. It matters to how long we're going to live. It should matter to uh, whether we're going to get the vaccine. And, uh, and I take that example from flight 1549. If you've ever seen the picture of the plane going down, lots of people in coach on the, on the wing going down and uh, very few people uh, in, in harm's way because in first class they got wraps. So I think that the question of comorbidities is just an entrance to the structural issues we have to be concerned mm. about. Well, Lori writes, are your guests concerned about the possibility that people most in need of vaccines are in essential jobs and are Latinx or African-American? Are they most at risk if the vaccine proves to be dangerous over time? I mean, it's a very interesting question because, Dean Bowen, while you are talking about the importance of trying to get the vaccine to communities that have experienced disproportionate numbers of infections, and, and deaths even. At the same time, there's this question of whether or not uh, people will agree to take it if it's available to them, both because of an earlier question that I was trying to get an answer to. There's concern that there are large percentages of people who say that they won't get it, but also because of this concern that essentially, you know, if a vaccine isn't completely safe, it would be these populations where we would realize that first. Yeah, there are really two at least very important and crucial issues in, in implicated in that question. First, the trust issue. When we look at populations earlier, uh, we were talking about the flu vaccination and H1N1. When we look at populations that are vulnerable, they have an intrinsic and justifiable reason for distrust of the medical profession. It's a historical one. I need only say uh, Henrietta Lacks or the Tuskegee experiment, and you will 
you will immediately understand, the audience will immediately understand why trust is a really serious concern for uptake among vulnerable populations. It has been seen in other vaccine settings. It will be seen in COVID. Uh, that's one part of the question. The other part is positionality. What are the essential workers in our economy uh, demographically? Well, they are largely black and brown people. 30% of bus drivers are African-American or Latinx. 25% of the people who are stocking our food shelves in order to make sure that we can shelter in place and eat are African-American and are Latinx. And we have a moral obligation because we are depending as a society on uh, as a whole on these populations to also prioritize them when it comes to vaccines. So now to the part of your question that is practical, what do we do if this is an essential worker group that is largely African-American, Latinx and Native American and distrust the system, what do we do? Well, the answer is we have to address the underlying racism that made them distrustful in the distribution of the vaccine. So we have to have issues that address the structural barriers. We have to go to where they are. We have to bring language appropriate educational materials to them. I was deeply concerned, I must say, by the, uh, the otherwise wonderful uh, plan that California has put in place. If we are going to, as I think uh, my co-panelist said, simply accept who will and will not take the vaccine, we'll simply replicate the existing disparities and inequalities. So one of the things we have to do is not accept those fears and those uh, the fact that people distrust justifiably. We have to get community health workers, not just physicians and nurses from the distrusted medical profession, but people from the communities themselves and distribute educational materials. We have to also lastly collect data, stratify it by race, and at the same time that we are distributing, look at uptake and adjust to see if we're hitting the populations that are vulnerable. You know, it's been reported that it's been quite controversial to specifically name uh, racial or ethnic groups to be able to get uh, vaccines first, as if that could be some legal questions around that. I mean, as a, a legal scholar, Dean Bowen, Matthews, you know, is this something that, that courts would not be too happy with in terms of guidelines explicitly based on race? Well, certainly. Um, I'm, I'm going to start with the status quo of the law. I am the dean of the George Washington University Law School. I have to say, uh, I have to recommend things that are legal. Um, and so specifically naming race as the motivating factor would not only be uh, challenged legally, but it's not necessary. It's not uh, the way that we could get at the underlying concerns about the disproportionality by race um, that we are concerned with. Uh, before I suggest the alternative, let me, uh, however, uh, say that it is quite ironic and uh, I, I think problematic that we have a historically inequitable system that was very willing to be constructed by naming race, right? The reason that we have essential workers that are mostly black and brown is because we have explicitly uh, excluded people by race from educational opportunities, from residential opportunities, from employment opportunities. But when it comes to fixing it, we suddenly become ecumenical and we don't want to name race anymore. That's just an aside. But what should we do since that's the state of the law until we are, uh, in my view, more enlightened about it? What we should do is make sure that when we suggest 
priorities, we have in mind the disproportionality by race as well as, for example, occupation. So if we say, as I said earlier, and as the working group is paying attention to, that healthcare workers, for example, are to be prioritized, we must recognize that if we only mean physicians and clinicians with a high level of training, we will miss the healthcare workers who are the technicians, uh, the food service, uh, hospital food service staff, the janitorial staff who are working within healthcare settings and are largely minority populations. Mm. So we have to address the racial inequity that we know is embedded in our occupational hierarchy. That sounds like we can get to that, say, if we prioritize healthcare workers and define that broadly or essential workers and, and so forth. Uh, let me go to Steve in Santa Barbara. Hi, Steve. Uh, hi. Yeah, I have a question about the time before uh, vaccines become available. Uh, it seems that lockdowns are often successful in reducing the rate of COVID infection. So I'm wondering if anyone has considered having a nationwide uh, lockdown that uh, you hmm. could plan it out a few weeks in advance and give people time to prepare and, uh, you know, help make the case for, for uh, why a lockdown uh, could be a good idea. Steve, thanks. I mean, Damien Garda, he raises an important point about, okay, so once it's developed, it's gonna be many months before it's actually available. So, you know, what kinds of things need to happen in between so that uh, you know, you're reducing hospitalizations and deaths and, and infections as well? So, you know, talk about that in between time. Are there discussions about what are the best strategies even after a, a vaccine is um, produced? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think public health officials have been clamoring for a organized national approach to this that could include lockdowns or even just mandating the wearing of masks. Um, the federal government as it exists in this country has not been particularly interested uh, in instituting something like that. But I don't think that those, those calls will change. I think even just strictly maintaining social distancing, which in many states um, isn't really happening, would be advisable at the very least. But the thing is, that not that public health officials would, would advise people not to be careful, but there is a little bit of a catch-22 here in that over the next few months, we're going to be running in this country at least four 30,000 volunteer vaccine studies. And the way that we'll determine whether those vaccines work is in comparing the rates of infection between placebo and vaccine. And so, you know, kind of paradoxically, I, I don't want to say want, but it, the, those studies will read out faster the higher the rate of infection is. We will know whether the study is positive or negative. The more people who get infected, whether placebo or, or vaccine group, then we'll be able to discern whether the vaccine is working. So there is kind of an, an, an interesting push and pull in the next coming months as we both obviously want to limit the effects of COVID-19 on this country, but also want to run scientifically rigorous trials on the vaccines that we may be taking in perpetuity. And really quickly then, what about, what's the status of development of therapies in the meantime too, just to mitigate the effects of the coronavirus? So that is also kind of an all hands approach. And there are a few um, repurposed drugs that, that have demonstrated some promise, including the steroid uh, dexamethasone and then also remdesivir, which I think um, has gotten a lot of attention. Um, I think the, the near-term thing that a lot of scientists are looking forward to are results from studies on therapeutic antibodies, basically antibodies that are grown in a lab meant to replicate the ones that your body would, uh, would generate were you to be infected. The idea is that those could work both as a treatment for people who already have COVID-19 and also prophylactically, somewhat like a vaccine. 
we should be getting data from at least early stage studies in the coming weeks. And so that could be something that would roll out. But I think, you know, ideally we will have an armamentarium of therapeutics and vaccines if in fact coronavirus is something that we have to deal with societally for the years to come. Um, and most, you know, scientists kind of say that the therapeutics are there to, to dull the blow and to lower, you know, the length of hospitalizations and ideally the mortality rate, but really a vaccine is the gold standard for protection. Well, Damien Garde, National Biotech Reporter at Stat News, thanks so much for talking with us. And Dana Bowen-Matthew, Dean and Professor of Law at George Washington University Law School and Ethics Advisor to the CDC. Really appreciate having you on. Also appreciated having Dr. Offit, Paul Offit on earlier, as well as Catherine Flores-Martin. Jameson Weiss and Judy Campbell co-produced today's segment. I'm Mina Kim. Thanks so much for listening. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.